How many of you are glad that Jesus is alive? I was working on my sermon, and this is totally unrelated, which is always a great start, right? You guys are feeling confident now. But I was remembering that scripture where it says, and the angel of the Lord came and swept through, and when they woke up, they were all dead. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about in the Old Testament? Now, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you wake up and you're dead. But this morning, I was excited because I woke up and I was alive. And that seems better. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can be together today. We celebrate your goodness and your love. We thank you because we gather not for a religion, not for a purpose of trying to earn our way into your heart. But no, Lord, we respond to your heart, to your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and walked this earth, who himself felt the pain of betrayal, the pain of sarcasm and political posturing, rejection, all the things that we faced, every temptation, but even so without sin. And all the while, his eyes set upon the cross, knowing that he was here to bring us back to you. He is the best old, old, older brother ever. And we thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being our big brother. Thank you for taking us into the Father's arms. Open up our eyes and our hearts today because we want to receive a greater revelation of who you are. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and we celebrate Palm Sunday, and for me, I sort of celebrated Palm Sunday most of my life, having no real idea what exactly that meant. I knew it involved some palms, and so I'm assuming maybe there's a couple people out here that don't quite know what exactly happened on Palm Sunday, and so I want to cover a little bit of that, but all the while, I also want for us to see ourselves in this story, because how many of you know that though Jesus died a few thousand years ago, it's still very, very important that he did, and it affects us today. The fact that he came into Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago is just as groundbreaking, powerful, life-changing as it was that day. And I can't skip ahead of the story so we don't know if he raised or not. We'll find that out later this, this next week. But right now we get to start here. And we want to start with the story of Lazarus. And I'm reading today from uh, the uh, Jesus Christ, the greatest story ever told. And it's a, it's a blending of the four Gospels together. So if you're trying to read along with me, it won't quite work out for you. Because it uses all of the verses of all four of the Gospels at once. So I'm just going to read to you in story form, Okay. This first part is from John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now this was the same Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, 
This sickness will not end in death. Instead, it will show the glory of God, and through it, the Son of Man will be glorified. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days where he was. And afterward, he said to his disciples, let's return to Judea. And Rabbi, the disciples replied, not long ago, the Jews were trying to stone you. Why are you going there again? I love that. You know they're trying to kill you there, right, Jesus? I don't know if you forgot. Aren't there 12 hours of daylight, Jesus told them? Whoever walks in the daytime avoids stumbling since he sees the light of the world. But anyone who walks at night stumbles since the light is not in him. And then he added, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. And then the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but his disciples thought he was talking about literal sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Now you will have the opportunity to believe, but let us go to him. And Thomas, also called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too, so we may die with him. Now, I just think this is such an interesting situation. Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of followers who have absolutely no idea what's going on most of the time. It must have been so lonely. I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, they're just always confused. He is sleeping. And they're like, mmm, then he's going to get better. That's good, Lord, he's going to get better. He's like, no, he's, he's dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the joke. I feel like Jesus gets me. I tell a lot of really smart jokes, in my opinion, and half the time no one gets them. I think that's what was happening with Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps. Now, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus already had been in the tomb for four days. And since Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother's death. Now, Jesus has been traveling all over, and all of the, of the different miracles that he's been doing, by and large, have been out in the country and in the smaller towns. And, and in fact, if you recall, Jesus most of the time is telling them, like he raises someone from the dead, and he goes, don't tell anyone. You know, so it makes the lame person walk, shh, just go to the temple. Just tell them, you know, nothing. <laughs> tell them you just started learning how to walk. So he's just kept everything on the down low. But now he's two miles from Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem. So it, it, in other words, he's, he's in like the New York City of Israel. <laughs> he's, he's at the epicenter of culture shaping and political power, okay? And, and now... He's going towards Lazarus. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she hurried out to meet him while Mary continued sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet even now I know that God will give you anything you ask for. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the end of time, Martha replied. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he should die. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she answered. I too have believed that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And then she left and called her sister Mary. The teacher has come, she told her privately, and he is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up and came to him. Jesus had not yet arrived in the village, but remained where, where Martha met him. And when the Jews who had come to the house to comfort Mary saw her quickly get up and leave, they followed her, <clears throat> uh, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep there. As soon as Mary reached Jesus, 
She fell at his feet. Lord, she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw both her and the Jews weeping, he sighed deeply, and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Lord, come and see, they answered. And Jesus wept. Look how much he loved him, the Jews said. And yet some of them remarked, couldn't the man who gave sight to the blind have kept this man from dying? And Jesus sighed deeply once more as he came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone covering the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. Lord, by this time there's a stench, replied Martha. The de- <laughs> it's always laugh, makes me laugh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the dead man, sister, it's been four days. Now, it's interesting that it was four days. Uh, I was reading that, that the Sadducees uh, believed that the spirit departed from the body after three days. And they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And I personally think that it was, it was kind of a, a political move on their own part, you know, because every once in a while somebody would seem like they were dead, you know, like in a coma or something, and then they pop back out, and it's like, oh, well, uh, they, didn't, they didn't get raised from the dead. There's no resurrection. They weren't, just weren't all the way dead yet. So the, you, you, it took you three days to get all the way dead, and your spirit didn't go anywhere. But just in case you recovered, they had like a, you know, a, con- a backup contingency plan. Well, they weren't really all the way dead. They were just mostly dead. <laughs> so they removed the stone from the place they had laid the dead man. And Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew you always hear me. But I said it because of the crowd standing here so they may believe that you really sent me. So you notice the change in what Jesus is doing. He just went from don't tell anyone to now, Father, I know that you hear me. Because he wants the crowd to know that it is the Father that actually sent him. So something has changed. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the one who had been dead came out, wrapped tightly from head to toe in strips of linen, and his face wrapped in cloth. Take off the grave clothes, Jesus said to the people there, and let him go. And many of the Jews who visited Mary saw what Jesus did, and they believed in him. But others went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting and they said, what are we accomplishing? This man's performing many miracles. If we let him continue, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas was high priest that year. You know nothing, he told them. You don't see that it's necessary for one man to die for the people so the whole nation won't be destroyed. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he was prophesying that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might gather together all of God's children who had been scattered all over the world. That's us, by the way. We're in that mix. And from that day on, they discussed how they might kill him. And that is why Jesus stopped walking around openly among the Jews and instead left and went to the town of Ephraim in the region near the desert. And there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus is declaring to everyone now, I have power over death. Before, he had risen some people from the dead, but now he's making a public declaration. He's saying, I have power 
over death and the grave. He says, Father, I know you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I've said this so that others will believe. And brothers and sisters, I want us to take a moment and I want us to meditate as we sing this next song, the declaration and the reality that this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, he has power over death and the grave. Chain, 
break every chain, break every chain, to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain, to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. Break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. He has power over death, amen? Now the Jews' feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And many left the country and headed to Jerusalem to purify themselves before the Passover arrived. And they were looking for Jesus there. And as they stood in the temple, they kept discussing with each other, do you think he'll come to the feast or not? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had ordered anyone knowing his whereabouts to report it to them because they intended to arrest him. Of course, as we know, their desire is to kill him. And six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, the man whom Jesus raised from the dead. And there at Bethany, they prepared dinner for him at the home of Simon the leper. And Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those eating with him. Can you imagine eating a meal with your brother who died, that got raised from the dead four days after he was in the tomb? I mean, I think just the whole time, just, everybody would just be watching him. <laughs> and then Mary took an alabaster jar of expensive ointment, a pound of pure nard, and came up to him as he reclined at the table. And she broke the jar and poured the ointment over his head. And she anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house soon was filled with the aroma of the ointment. I love, the, I love that picture of, of Mary's costly sacrifice filling the whole house with the aroma of her devotion. Many of you here are deep, deep worshipers and lovers of our God. You need to know that your aroma, the aroma of your devotion and your worship fills the house of God. And he notices it and he tells that story. When his disciples saw what she did, some became indignant and said to themselves, why is this ointment being wasted? This could have been sold for a considerable amount of money. And so they began to rebuke her. And Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, said, why wasn't this ointment sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor? He didn't say this because he was at all concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had charge of the money pouch and kept stealing what was put into it. Jesus was aware of all this, and he said to them, leave her alone. 
Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a good thing for me. She has saved this ointment for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, and you can help them whenever you want, but you won't always have me. She has done what she could. In pouring out this ointment, she has anointed my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever in the world this good news is proclaimed, what this woman has done will also be recounted in memory of her. And there it is, fulfilled again, right in your own presence. This woman who gave what she had, remembered for all of time by simply responding in devotion and sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? And many of the Jews who knew he was there came not only because of Jesus, but because they wanted to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And that is why the chief priests discussed how they might also kill Lazarus. On account of him, a large number of Jews were leaving them and believing in Jesus. Now, I want to talk a moment here how we go from lamb to fronds. And I want to talk to you about what is this lamb? See, Israel spent 430 years in bondage in Egypt. And God rescued Israel just as he had said that he would keep his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and just as he did keep that covenant and take Israel out of bondage to Egypt, he did this. And when he took them out of Egypt, there were 10 plagues, and you guys remember the story. And the 10th plague was where the angel of death came and visited every house and took the firstborn in every house. The only way to survive was to slaughter a lamb and mark the doorway to your home with some of the blood. And that way the angel of death would see the blood and he would pass over your house. And this is where we get the feast of the Passover. And this is where Jesus and all of the Jews are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They're coming to celebrate this time, this feast together, because you would eat the lamb. You would take the blood and you would put it on the doorway and then you would eat the lamb. In fact, here's the scripture, Exodus 12, 3 through 6, that, uh, that Moses spoke to the people of Israel the very first Passover. And he says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. And the animals you choose, they must be year-old males without defect, and you may take from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And so what they would do is this, on the 10th, this is lamb selection day. So for all of these years, on this day, on the Passover, everyone who has been following Yahweh, the one God, behold Israel, your God is one God. Every time they are selecting a lamb, the firstborn, a male without defect, in other words, without blot, without, without what do you think he's talking about here? A perfect lamb. And we know when John the Baptist, this is John the Baptist speaking in John 1, 29, he looks at Jesus and he says, look, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, but people weren't putting this together yet. This was a mystery. It's just a pet name that John the Baptist calls Jesus. I mean, you know, the, you know, you got John the Beloved's always putting his head on Jesus's chest. John the Baptist called him a lamb. Nobody understood it yet. But you know, here's what it was. This was lamb selection day. And Jesus is preparing to enter Jerusalem on the day when you select a lamb. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he came as the Passover lamb. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come as a warrior, a warrior king like King David. And in fact, Jesus did come as a warrior king. But instead of killing men and overthrowing Rome, Jesus was coming to take away sin and overthrow death. Since the time of Moses, when God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt, the people had been selecting a lamb to sacrifice so that death would not be able to enter their homes. They had no idea that the Messiah would come as that very lamb. They didn't realize that slavery had represented sin and that the Messiah had come to both defeat sin and death by himself dying in our place and taking the punishment of all sin. He was entering Jerusalem as the Lamb of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and he entered Jerusalem as the lamb, selected to pay for our sins and rescue us from sin and death. He is the Messiah. He was coming into Jerusalem on this very day. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world.
When they approached Jerusalem the next day and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two of his disciples. Go into the village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a donkey tied up. Tied with her will be a colt which no one has ever ridden. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything or asks, what are you doing? Then say to him, the Lord needs them, and he'll immediately send them. And those who were sent left and did what Jesus told them. And they found a young donkey tied outside the door in the street, just as he described it. And they untied it. And the owners were standing there, and they said, what are you doing? Why are you untying that colt? The Lord needs it, they said, repeating what Jesus had told them to say. And then the owners let them go. And so they brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus, threw their clothing on them, and sat Jesus on the colt. And as he rode along, they began to spread their articles of clothing on the road. And when he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, a large crowd of disciples began to shout for joy and praise God loudly for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who is coming in the name of the Lord, they shouted, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And a huge crowd had come to the feast, and when they heard that Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they cut down palm branches, went out to meet him, and spread the branches on the road. And the crowds who followed him, as well as those who went ahead of him, kept shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who is coming in the name of the Lord and the King of Israel. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And all this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. Tell the daughter of Zion, 
Don't be afraid. Look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the history of the palm fronds is interesting. You know, you read the Bible and you just kind of accept certain things because the Bible is not always as detailed as one might expect. There's a lot of assumption that you know what's going on. And indeed, there's been a lot of oral tradition in Israel, so you did hear those stories growing up. That was a part of it. But the palm fronds for Israel were a sign of political, it was like, it was, it was like their flag. It was like the stars and stripes. And when Israel had won different victories, then they would, they would cut palm fronds. And at this time, in fact, for those of you that heard last year, Jason, Jason brought up wonderfully well, um, the fact is that uh, during this time, palm fronds were such a sign of political, uh, well, basically going back to the culture of Israel being its own nation and, ha and having their own king, the palm frond was like flying the flag. It'd be like going in and tearing down the flag and putting up yours. They were banned in Jerusalem. You weren't even allowed necessarily, one historian said, to even have palm fronds. You couldn't be walking around with palm fronds in the city. So if you were trimming your palm tree, you'd probably just get them right in the fire and burn them. Don't be walking around with a couple palm fronds. You could be in a lot of trouble. And, and this is true because it was. It was a national symbol. And so when they cut these palm fronds and began to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were saying, Jesus is the king of Israel. And we believe it so much that we're willing to risk our lives right now by flying the flag or the frond of Israel. We believe this is the king. And so this is how it went from a lamb to fronds. Now it's interesting because as Jesus is entering as the king, there's different responses from different people, aren't there? And everyone has an idea of what they think this king of Israel is going to do. They think they know what's going to happen. The people are ecstatic. Everyone is imagining what it will be like to finally have a king in Israel again. And not only that, but the true king. The true king. The one that's so clearly been prophesied of. The one that's raising people from the dead and, and, and creating food out of thin air. Healing blind eyes and, 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 and lame people can walk. That's a pretty good king. And they're thinking, not only does he heal people, but we can overthrow Rome. I mean, we could attack these guys, and if they kill us, Jesus will just raise us from the dead, and then we will kill them. So everyone is imagining what this king will do. And it makes me think for us today. He, he was welcomed in Jerusalem as the king. And many of us have said, you are indeed a king. But many of us have asked him to become the king of our personal agenda. Many of us like the idea of him being powerful and strong, but then we would like to tell him how that kingdom of which we'd like to make him a king really works. And it makes me ask this question, what is it that I have wanted the true king to do for me? What is it that I've wanted him to establish 
Have I rejoiced over the idea of Jesus coming into my life but missed the reality of what it means if he is actually a king? Because he is a king. Jesus, you're more than I. 
fascinating to meditate on the idea that he's more than just a friend and I confess that oftentimes when I sang that song I think of it as sort of my own personal Jesus it was interesting to sing the chorus today I think you're so much more than a friend yes you're a friend you're the greatest friend I've ever had but you're a king you're a king who made me a friend I'm not the king who made you a friend. So all this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. Tell the daughter of Zion, don't be afraid. Look, your king, he is coming to you. Humble and riding a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples didn't understand these things at first, but after Jesus was glorified, they remembered these predictions about him and that he had done these things and that they had done these things to him. And the people who were with him when he raised Lazarus from the dead and called him from the tomb were telling others all about it. And that's why the people went out to meet him. They heard that he had performed this great miracle. And some Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, restrain your disciples because they're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, son of David. Welcome to Jerusalem, king of the universe. They didn't know he was the king of the universe, did they? No, I think they had that figured out. And so the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying, hey, get your people under control. They're essentially saying they're blaspheming. If you're really a good teacher right now, you're going to calm them down. But he answered them, and he said, I'm telling you, if they were to keep quiet, the very stones would cry out. And when he came near and saw the city, he wept over it. If only you... Yes, you had known on this special day the things that would bring you peace, but now they are hidden from you. And the days are coming when your enemies will build a siege ramp around you and encircle you and hem you in on all sides. And they will level you to the ground with your children inside you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. And this will happen because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming out, his coming to you. Now, I think this is interesting because I think oftentimes we read that scripture and we forget that it says that Jesus saw the city and he wept over the city. He didn't say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I can't wait to see your destruction. No, he wept over her and he said, I love you. Because Jesus, not only did he love Jerusalem, but Jesus loves cities. And he weeps over them to this day. And he sends good news through us, doesn't he? But he wept over Jerusalem that day. And it says, the whole city was aroused when he entered Jerusalem. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then the Pharisees said to each other, see, we're accomplishing nothing. Look at how the whole world has gone out after him. And Jesus entered the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, he left for Bethany 
with the 12 since it was already quite late. That's the question, isn't it? Who is this? You see, Jesus brings us all to a place of decision. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want to kill Jesus and they want to kill Lazarus because Jesus is upsetting their place of, of prestige, their place of political power, and he's messing with their deal. And so what do they want to do? They want to kill him. His own followers want him to have a political victory and tell all their enemies to do the right thing or die. So they have their agenda. Who is this Jesus? What will he do? But you see, Jesus' kingship brings us all to a place of decision. It brings us to a place of crisis. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't even like each other, but Jesus caused such a crisis in their lives that they got together and decided, we need to kill him. We don't agree on anything, but we both agree that this guy's trouble. He's pushing us to a decision, and we've made one. Kill him and get rid of the evidence. Lazarus is the evidence. But this is, a, this, is a, this is a message for us today. This is the same question that we must answer today. And even on this Palm Sunday, as though Jesus were entering Junction City right now, as though Jesus were entering this room right now. And of course, we know he entered the temple and he looked around. And what does the temple represent? In point of fact, it represents us. Jesus enters our temple and he looks around. What will he find? What will we do with Jesus entering the vicinity of our city? Perhaps for some of us, he's someone interesting who could do miracles and magic tricks. And it would be worth seeing, you know, a cool magic trick. Maybe he can levitate somebody. Maybe he could read my mail or really rock me. Maybe I could get wrecked if Jesus showed up. Maybe he's, he's, he's around for a good time. He's kind of a party animal. I like party animal Jesus. I'll go check him out. Is he a good teacher who's really smart? Maybe he has answers for me. Maybe he'll tell my husband how to act, get him fixed up. If he's a really smart teacher. Or my wife, maybe he'll get her to, you know, respect me more. You see, we've seen that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And this causes us to have to respond in some way. You see, you can't encounter the king himself, the selected lamb, and not have it demand a decision of you because he is a king. We know the Pharisees and Sadducees, they want to kill Jesus. That's their, that's their response. They have no room for a king. They're already positioned well in this life. And they don't want a king messing things up for them. How many of us are already positioned well in this life? We don't need King Jesus showing up, telling us what to do with 10% of my money. Right? Telling me when, when I'm going to spend my time and how. I don't need a king messing up my position of authority in my life. No room for that. For the disciples who are following Jesus already, they're under the impression that Jesus will overthrow Rome. They'll rise to political power and get back at those who have hurt them and bring justice, or perhaps for those who are being honest with themselves, vengeance 
on those who have hurt them. How many of us right now want Jesus to show up and rain down some vengeance on the people that hurt us? How many of us are praying for our leaders that God would give them wisdom and grant them mercy? Or maybe we're praying for vengeance. We know, of course, that Jesus doesn't bring vengeance on our enemies for quite some time. He weeps over Jerusalem and over those that are killing the prophets and doing all the things that we know to be wrong. His own disciples are soon going to have to decide whether or not they believe everything that Jesus said. There are people all over Jerusalem saying, who is this? Some are thrill seekers. Others are neither here nor there. They're neither for or against. In light of Jesus being king, they're going to have to make a decision about what they're going to do. And for them, not making decisions is kind of their thing. <laughs> they consider themselves very open-minded that way. There are those that just, they want to just live and let live. They just want things to remain as they are. Status quo is good enough. But King Jesus showed up, and some of us here are going to have to make a decision. We don't get to be ambivalent anymore. See, this is exactly where we are today. Everyone in this room is faced with a decision. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Because he is the lamb that was slain. And he is the king of the universe. And he is the righteous judge. He is the faithful servant. And he is our older brother. And we do not get to determine the terms of who he is. He is king. So what will I do? Will I try to ignore him? Will I try to kill every thought about him and argue that all his miracles are just fairy tales? It would be like my version of killing Lazarus, the nagging proof of Jesus being God. No matter what, when we're faced with Jesus, we have to make a decision. Will I turn towards him or will I keep walking? What is truly at stake is my own control. My own attempt at being a good person apart from him. And none of us can do it. But we tend to lie to ourselves about the fact. And it really does come down to wanting to control, doesn't it? We can get as busy as possible with work or play or drink or drug, food, or good causes. It doesn't matter. We're just trying to silence that nagging voice we hear when we're alone and quiet. Our conscience reminding us there is no way we can build a bridge long enough to get to heaven. The voice inside that with exhausted tenderness and childlike bluntness says, if only someone could come and save me, could come down and make things right in me. If we will be honest and respond in that moment, then we'll turn and see him, the one who did, the lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who made a bridge from heaven to earth. And he will ask each of us, do you want me to be your king? 
and then we will answer. I'd like to ask the prayer servant team to come forward. I want you to just respond to Jesus. This, this time is for us to respond to the king. And when you've responded, be blessed. We'll see you Monday night.
to me.